Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. Today's episode is the latest in our series of interviews with the leading regulators, policymakers, and thought leaders in technology policy. And I'm thrilled this week to be joined by Helen Dixon. Helen will be familiar to most, if not all, of our listeners. She is the Data Protection Commissioner for Ireland, and she's been in post for nearly a decade. She's been in post since 2014. She's overseen a tumultuous period in data protection policy, overseen the entry into force of the EU's general data protection regulation, the GDPR, and thereby taken on responsibility for regulating many of the world's largest technology companies, indeed many of the world's largest companies. So Helen, thank you for joining me today. There were three things that I wanted to do as part of the discussion. So the first was, as we talked about before we started recording, you're, you're nearing the end of your term in your current role. So an appropriate moment to look back on not only your time over the last decade, but also the last five years of the general data protection, the GDPR in the EU and your experience of that and your views on how that has changed the data protection landscape in Ireland, but also in the rest of the European Union. The second would be to look ahead to the potential reform of the GDPR. Obviously, it's not static policymaking cycle is going to move forward in the coming years. So what if there were to be a reform of the GDPR, your views on where you think that should or perhaps shouldn't go? And the final area was just to try and explore some of those tensions more broadly between data protection and other policy priorities. So data protection, online safety, data protection and competition. You may come back to me and tell me that's a false dichotomy, but interested to get your views across some of those areas and see if you think some of those tensions are genuine or slightly overstated by perhaps those on the industry side of things. But if that sounds good, if we can go into that first bucket of issues, and I was interested when I listened to a recent interview that you gave, you cited, I think it was the Eurobarometer survey to show that there was wide public awareness of the GDPR. I think anecdotally, anecdotally, I would say my experience would be the same. Lots of people who aren't involved in policy that friends of mine would often talk about the GDPR. There's wide recognition clearly amongst the public. But with five years in, there's a slightly separate question of, yes, it's well known, but do you think it's had a positive impact on citizens or at least the positive impact that people envisaged when they started this process 10 years ago, when it was approved in 2016? Has it had that key protecting impact on citizens from harms that perhaps we had seen prior to its implementation? Well, I'm glad you've framed the question around citizens or individuals or the public, because often when we have these conversations, there tends to be an emphasis on the regulatory burden on on the entities that are regulated. But of course, as you rightly frame it, this is really about protection of fundamental rights of, of individuals and making sure, as the GDPR said, that processing of data and really technology serves mankind rather than the other way around. I picked up on a word that you mentioned in your intro to this question, which was anecdotally. And actually, um, I think even now, five years into the GDPR, it's very clear that there is a distinct lack of empirical evidence around weather and positive impacts there have been in terms of the GDPR, in terms of protecting people. So there's a lot, a lot of research that has been done that really gives us a definitive view on this and gives us a really evidence-based view. But I'll mention one particular study that, that I quote from time to time in a moment. But to come back to that anecdotal word, what we can see as a data protection authority is that undoubtedly the GDPR has had very positive impacts for EU persons. We can see that in very basic terms because of the quantity and frequency of rights exercised by individuals and effectively exercised, where individuals are getting access to their personal data. We have statistics from companies where they tell us the number of requests for exercise of rights that they obtain, and the volumes are high. And then, of course, we see the complaint end of that where the exercising of rights doesn't work out. So individuals have gained in terms of that control and in particular being able to get access to copies of their personal data. We also, I think, see the positive impacts in terms of 
the appointment of thousands and thousands of new data protection officers in organizations since the GDPR came into effect, because they have that important connecting role between the organization and the public. In particular, the DPC also sees positive impacts in terms of the mandatory consultation with our authority by government when they're seeking to introduce legislation that will have significant data processing implications, and we've been able to intervene early, and so on and so on. So I could, I could cite lots and lots of different ways where there are undoubtedly positive impacts. But to go back to one of the rare empirical research studies that we have seen, it's one, as I said, that I've, I've quoted a few times called Data Protection or Data Frustration, and it was a 2020 Dutch study. And what they actually saw at that time was when they looked at individuals and their perceptions and attitudes and experience of the GDPR, they found there was quite a high level of reactance. The individuals felt fearful at work of making a mistake that was going to be a major GDPR issue. But then in their own private lives and social lives, they felt they weren't getting the flow down benefits, that they were in a level of anxiety that they should be having better control because the GDPR said they'd have better control over their data and yet they didn't feel they had control and also didn't feel often that the narrative spoken about the GDPR reflected the kind of data society we live in now where individuals want to share more but choose what they share and, and how they share it. So long answer, but I think the, there have been positive impacts without a doubt in terms of protectiveness of individuals. There's also a lot more empirical research that needs to be done to really understand more individuals' experience of the GDPR. And I think over time, we need to work out some of the costs at which the positive impacts have come with. For example, we, we, we do see examples of over-implementation of the GDPR GDPR used as an excuse not to do things, failure to share data where there should be legitimate and justified data sharing, and so on. All of these are, are the price of fear that you're going to be sanctioned for not complying. But it's early days. Five years is not a lot of time for, for such a general application law. And I think we're very satisfied that organizations have embraced compliance and the public have also embraced the new law. And just on that point, I was interested what you said there about you've seen instances of overcompliance. What are the sort of situations that you've been, been seeing there? Well, actually, you, you'll note I didn't say overcompliance. I said overimplementation. So there are lots of them. For example, I had an individual who approached me recently, a member of a longstanding bridge club, and suddenly in the name of the GDPR, having known the names of all the members of the club, because I think you need to organize your tables around who the members are. <laughs> um, the, the bridge club had decided nobody could know the name of any other member and, and you couldn't have a membership list any longer that it would infringe the GDPR. So that's not compliance with GDPR. Uh, perhaps I should have said misinterpretations and attempts to apply it in ways that really offer no protection and just irritate people. Yes, and I wonder, given your example as well, whether some of that happens at the smaller end of the, the size of companies or size of organisations where perhaps there's a lack of clarity and understanding about exactly how the GDPR should or, or should not be implemented. You could say that. And of course, the GDPR's answer to all of this is that it intended a risk-based approach. Part of the challenge of the GDPR is that it is general purpose, general application it applies to all data processing operations and has those definitions of controller and processor that can draw in even individuals who have CCTV systems and smart bells on their homes. So the GDPR itself has sought to regulate everyone and everything almost. And its answer to the fringe issues is, oh, but it's a risk-based approach. You don't need to go overboard. You can be proportionate in terms of how you meet the risks. But let's face it, that's difficult for all of us, isn't it? The local residents association becomes nervous because they start getting complaints from one resident that they don't want their phone number circulating. The local community centre becomes uh, concerned that they can't share for community 
activities in the same way because people do complain. There are complaints about these things. And sometimes as an authority, we have to look at these issues that are really, as you said, on the margin and on the fringes. But the GDPR equally recognises the right of the individual to lodge a complaint and have it handled. And that, I think, sometimes can create a nervousness in even smaller organisations that they don't want to end up spending resources on an enforcement matter. It's interesting that, that there's the role of the regulator within this, the role of, of you and your, your organisation and how you are able to encourage clients, but also provide guidance for organisations in order to comply. When I was interviewing John Edwards, the UK Information Commissioner, early this year, I was, I was struck by his argument was almost that if you ended up having to find companies, which again, is going to be the, the larger companies typically, it was almost an admission of failure that the system had not worked, that you'd ended up there. And that he argued that the focus should be on ensuring and importantly, encouraging compliance from businesses. So trying to cajole them via guidance, via uh, interaction with them. I think on a previous interview, you talked about the role of deterrence in the GDPR. And I just wanted to get into where your sort of regulatory philosophy sort of stands on, on that point, that balance between the sort of the stick and the, I suppose it's not quite a carrot, but some form of encouragement to businesses around how to actually apply GDPR in a fair and proportionate manner. Well, I think I can definitely understand the view expressed by John Edwards in, in terms of the point about failure, because if you go back and look at regulatory theory and study of regulation in particular, there's been a lot of study of regulation in the financial sector. It's, it's very clear that when there is a new law, organizations automatically seek to comply with it. It's an obligation to which they're subject. They seek to comply. And what the studies tell us is that particularly where they clearly identify with the objectives and aims of the law, and they feel that they're regulated fairly by a fair regulator, then the outcomes are, are better. So I think there's no doubt then that uh, what John may be referring to is that when you create an environment and circumstances, uh, potentially in, in part through guidance, as you mentioned, then organisations typically want to comply. They're not looking to evade the law and, and they're cer certainly not looking to be enforced against. That said, however, I think what we've observed as a regulator over the last five years is that there does need to be an element of pressure applied by regulators because we have seen time and time again that even with very large organisations, yes, you can have a scenario where you could say there's uncertainty about the application of the law and the GDPR to certain scenarios and reasonable people may differ on the specifics of the application of the law. But what we've seen time and time again is that even the large organisations don't take the basic accountability steps. They didn't conduct the data protection impact assessment in the first place. Uh, they didn't systematically look at the risks and consider the uh, different alternatives involved and look then at what measures uh, could, could render the system more protective? Um, how, how could data protection by design and default have been engineered in when the very basic accountability steps weren't taken? So I think you do need both. That is our experience. There has been a reason why there has had to be pressure applied in the first five years of the GDPR. I think it is, however, equally true to say that there are a lot of matters that we're now seeing referred from national courts to the CJU as preliminary reference cases. That tells us that there's a lot that's not act clear under the GDPR in terms of its application. So there's a journey to go on in terms of bottoming out on the certainty of how the law applies. But in the meantime, you do need the carrots and the sticks would, would be our view. Quite interesting. We were talking about before we started recording about how a lot of the themes of these podcast episodes were increasingly towards AI. And actually, my mind started thinking as you were talking around the AI debate about, particularly in the UK, about do we follow 
the EU's approach and have a hard law via the AI Act and the AI Liability Directive coming? Or does the UK continue to have a sort of soft law approach, which is currently its position? But almost the case that you were making there without that sort of stick resonates not just with data protection, but also other areas of digital regulation and indeed more broadly than that. And clearly those same sort of considerations of doing thorough impact assessments and making sure your systems and processes are correct applies quite clearly to AI as much as it does to data protection. I did though want to jump into a little bit more into the, the question of fines. You have probably grown bored of this topic over the years, constant, constant sort of questions about is the Data Protection Commission being tough enough on big tech? Where are these big fines? I think in a previous interview, you said something along those fines catch the imagination of the media, but also the policy community. And I think that's totally correct. But however, we've, we've sort of seen something obviously change quite dramatically with a lot of big cases that you have had over the last 18 months, where actually, I would argue, well, or at least contend that there is, there have been massive fines, really big cases, whether that's around Instagram or, or TikTok and various others. And there could also be the counter argument of, have we, has there been an overcorrection after all this time of being, being argued that you weren't being stern and hard enough on companies? Have we reached a point whereby it's gone the other way and that we're too heavily relying on this, these big cases, these big fines against some of these companies? Linking back to your previous question on our discussion about carrots and sticks and now chat about fines, you reminded me of words I've heard Vivian Redding, the former EU commissioner who heralded the GDPR off and said, she said that when the, the GDPR was in gestation and she was meeting all the big stakeholders and trade representative bodies and companies, she wasn't really getting anywhere and really couldn't get their attention much on, on a law that would be an evolution of, of what was the 95 Directive. And then when they put the 4% of turnover fines on the table, she got their attention. And your question is really now about whether it has swung too far. Thinking back to my previous answer, we approach each case on its merits and specifics and we investigate the case and any sanctions we apply fall out of the infringements and are based on the gravity, nature and duration. So in that sense, I think you can't group everything together. You do have to look at the specifics of each case, but you also have to bear in mind that if fines are to act as a deterrence, which, which the GDPR tells us we must consider applying one where we find infringements and we must do so for deterrence purposes, the more fines ratchet up, but infringements are still occurring, the more fines keep having to ratchet up. They're not having a deterrent effect and, and the level of fines forces the level of fines higher. You talked about a change in the last 18 months. We wouldn't say there was any change in the last 18 months. There was a false perception that on the 26th of May, that might have been a Sunday though, maybe around the 30th of May 2018, you'd see the first fines in the post to companies. You cannot apply a fine and a heavy sanction without first having conducted an investigation and, of course, gone through a process, which in the case of Irish DPC cases involves a long cooperation and consistency process at, at EU level. The jury is out on whether fines work. We know that in a very generic sense, behavioural economists argue that they don't really change behaviour. Fines on corporates become to some extent a cost of doing business and don't change the behavior of the humans that are working in the companies whose behavior we're trying to affect. I don't fully agree with that in the sense that, as I said, they catch media imagination and they draw attention to the offending behavior of an organization. So in that sense, they at least indirectly, I think, do uh, change behavior. There have been many times in many cases where We've spent time trying to brief the media on very word, the corrective measures that we're imposing and on the nuance of infringements we've found. And at the end of the day, the journalist just wants to know what's the figure and the headline is the fine. And so, as I say indirectly, that, that does loop back around. To come back to your actual question about has it swung 
too far. We're only just starting. We're only five years in. We're only concluding some of the large scale inquiries. So um, if you think it's swung too far already, I don't think it's finished would be my view. Um, but also, there's very little I can say really about this at the moment, because that very question you're asking is now the subject of multiple pieces of litigation, both before the general court uh, at the CJU and before the High Court in Ireland, where, uh, and of course in Luxembourg and in other jurisdictions where the fines, as well as some of the substantive findings, are being hotly contested. So I suppose in a legal sense, the courts are going to test whether we followed the law in terms of what Article 83 has to say and in terms of the rationale and reasoning and, and how we measured the proportionality of, of the actions that we've taken. So we'll be back to you with an answer on that once, once the first big case is heard. We, we have a case, I think, now listed in the High Court for May next year. It's, it's the Meta Large Dataset case. And that, that's possibly going to be the first one where we'll hear that contest on, on the size of the fine. I mean, it's interesting some of the points that you raised there. One is around how effective regulation is, and I guess how that feeds through into the public imagination. We did a big piece of research into regulation of the so-called metaverse last year, so VR, AR headsets, and we did a long citizens jury focus group with the public. They did a similar exercise over this summer about generative AI. And one thing that really jumped out in both, and this wasn't data protection specific, but data protection did come into it, was a skepticism that these large companies could ever be brought to heel by regulators. Just they were too powerful was the sense of the public. And the other thing that came out as sort of linked to that was that in the public's mind, that power was expressed by concentration and accumulation of data. So they weren't talking about competition policy. Yeah, DMA's great for all the policy wonks, but they weren't thinking about ex-ante regulation. They saw power through collection and control of everybody's data. And there was a sense through both of those things, I think, of a certain powerlessness from the public when they were thinking about it. Admittedly, the UK public in both cases, but I think that probably applies more broadly. Looking ahead, so we've looked back, we've done the GDPR, we've had a few reflections on, on where it's been. And, you know, I think we would both agree that the jury's still out. And if we take a, a point of comparison, EU competition policy is pretty feared and renowned, I think, by large companies of lots of different sectors. But it's taken decades to get there. So we're in a very early, early step. But we are also, also at a point of policy development and potential policy change. And it'd be great to move on to that second part that I identified earlier, which is around what might change in the GDPR moving forward and what you think should change. So one thing that builds on what we were just talking about is around enforcement and who does the enforcing. So last month, I interviewed Wojciech Bivarioski, the European Data Protection Supervisor. He argued that in 98% of cases, he said, the one-stop shop national level works well. Yes, it could be refined in certain ways, but generally speaking, it works well that that regulation is done by national level regulators. But he argued in that sort of remaining 2% of cases, what he termed something like genuinely pan-European cases, that perhaps the EDPB should be the body responsible for directly regulating these cases. I guess that would be similar to say in the DSA, you have the commission playing that role, or then DMA, you'll get the commission playing that role for some of the very largest companies. Given you have been the data protection authority overseeing many, not all, but many of these big cases, and de facto being the, the central regulator for many of the largest companies in the world, just interested to get your views on that proposal. I know he's not alone in having suggested a more centralized system. Yes. So maybe before I come to the question, I'm, I'm not sure about these statistics of 98% or 2% or, or, or what they mean. Yeah. And, and perhaps I suppose because the EDPS isn't a national regulator and doesn't regulate under the GDPR, perhaps he's unaware of the issues actually arising in the 98% of cases, even if I take the subset of them that are one-stop shop cases. So all day long, the DPC is transacting with other EU data protection authorities. 
in terms of complaints lodged with us about controllers in other member states um, and cases then that we're handling on, on behalf of other EU data protection authorities. And there are plenty of challenging uh, issues with them, not least around being clear on where the main establishment of organisations is. Sometimes that can be very difficult to establish. Translation of documents, timelines and efficiency in terms of transferring complaints, but also actually a very big issue for all of us as EU national data protection authorities is that the IT system that we use five years in to share information on, on cases between us is really not fit for purpose. It's incredibly clunky. It's really difficult. It involves keeping separate spreadsheets to track case numbers, to find them again, and so on. And this is the subject of, of considerable ire and discussion between national data protection authorities. And of course, that's something that is within the function of the EDPB to resolve already and steps need to be taken to do that is one of the first things I'd say. The other thing is the EDPB, of course, is just a secretariat in the EDPS, then with a representative of each EU member state data protection authority. It has no investigatory powers at the moment. It has no experience of investigations even in the limited decision-making role that it has currently. It doesn't hear from organizations or establish facts or hear from complainants. So you would have to have a massive rewrite of the GDPR. You would have to really dismantle the one-stop shop. And I suppose a question that would arise is, given the negotiations that went on for so long on the GDPR, and the arguments at the time from the member states that didn't want the Commission enforcing centrally that you had to have this proximity in the EU member states, why would you make the 2% of cases any different? Why would you deny the proximity issues in those particular cases? So it's not a suggestion I particularly understand. I think fixing up the sort of logistical issues like the IT system, looking at this new Harmonisation Act around enforcement the EU Commission has published and, and looking to see if that can improve some of the mechanisms for sharing, they would probably be more productive steps. Speaking as an expert who is at the centre of enforcement, last thing I would say is if you're going to be an enforcer, in relation to big technology platforms and the EU Commission will know this from competition cases as well. You're going to have to become an expert in terms of litigation and your organisation managing litigation because as sure as night follows day, litigation is going to follow in some of these cases. Again, the EDPB is not an organisation with any experience of, of litigation. So I'm not sure why you'd hit on that as a suggestion. I would think if there's going to be an opening up of the GDPR and reform, you'd want a proper open evidence-based debate and not somebody from one organisation lobbying to have it moved to their organisation as the starting point. You mentioned the current harmonisation proposals that are going through at the moment in, in Brussels. Do you think they will make a tangible improvement to the process? Oh, I think they will. I think they, they lay down some specifics that would be useful in, in terms of a level playing field. So you're probably aware that, for example, in Ireland, we would afford complainants full rights as a party to any investigation we conduct in relation to their complaint. So we would hear them on our statements of issues and on preliminary drafts of our decisions and, and how we're uh, analysing the issues alongside hearing, of course, the regulated entity. Other EU member states don't hear complainants at all. They, they take on the role of acting for the complainant and really just deal with the regulated entities. So there's, there's a lot of different processes and procedures. And I think this Harmonisation Act, as one example, would aim to standardise how and when complainant parties will be heard as part of a process. So, yeah, I think it's a good initiative. The fact that administrative laws in the different EU member states are not harmonised does cause issues. 
I mentioned the translation of documents and so on, that can become an issue as well. And it's, it's going to lay down specific rules if, of course, it, it passes ultimately. Yes, and well, quite. And we've seen, seen examples in the past that can slip beyond the European election, particularly when there's plenty of negotiations to be getting done, including the AI Act and various other things before we hit the European elections. But if we jump across to the other side of the European elections, so if I'm right in thinking there is a evaluation of the GDPR more broadly ongoing, you also have the political situation whereby a new commissioner comes in, a new digital commissioner, assuming they might be new or they might be reappointed, but they come in and they want to think about how to make their name as the in their second term or in their first term as the digital commissioner and your services and cabinet hold up, there's this thing called GDPR. You might want to do GDPR 2.0. And we talked about that, what that could be. So, I mean, well, that could be on the enforcement side. But there's obviously a broader issue here. It's not just about enforcement. It's not just about that centralization or not debate or whether it can be streamlined. It's also about going back to our original conversation, but how can it work better both for citizens and for businesses, particularly at the smaller end, I just wondered if the, you had, there were specific elements that you thought more broadly within the GDP, GDPR that could be tidied up or improved, maybe made more proportional. You've talked about micro-enterprises and SMEs and how it could be the regulatory burden might be lifted on them potentially to be made slightly more proportionate. But just generally speaking, be interested to get your views on where you think that should go. In some ways, I think in a digital sense, and if you talk about the digital platforms, I think we're seeing GDPR 2.0 now. I think the triangulation around issues that we've already had to look at, that the DMA and the DSA bring in particular to the VLOPs and, and the gatekeepers that are the same big entities we regulate, is already creating a type of GDPR 2.0 because it's pushing in at the same issues and it's also forcing a balancing at regulatory level between issues of security and data protection, between issues of online safety and data protection. So we see that there's legitimately a big debate in relation to the interoperability provisions under the Digital Markets Act in terms of messaging services. And of course, concerns are being expressed that this is going to create security issues. It's going to create issues around invasion of privacy and data protection. And that is a real discussion to be had. Uh, I, I don't think that is just dust being thrown up by the gatekeepers. There, there, there is a real discussion to be had around that. So I think zoning in on these issues and forcing at a regulatory level the decisions to be made as to where the balance lies already, I would say, for platforms and, and for those who regulate platforms, has created the 2.0. Looking at the GDPR more broadly and its, its general application and some of the smaller organizations it applies to that we talked about earlier, one, one of the challenges of the GDPR is, of course, around the fact that there is no bottom threshold for complaints. So we get a lot of complaints lodged. We get thousands and thousands of complaints and we fully support the idea that complaints should be lodged with data protection authorities. It's what gives us insight. It helps us establish priorities and, and where to pursue the areas of highest risk. But some of the complaints that we get clearly expose absolutely no risk to the individual. The individual who's upset about the way an envelope was folded and put into an envelope that lets the postman see his email address, as whether it's as well as his postal address. This this kind of issue that really just takes up time and where someone can dig in in terms of using up time. I don't know whether it would be possible to frame a law that could set some kind of a threshold around the type of complaints lodged. There's an advocate general that you may be familiar with from the Court of Justice. He's now moved back to the judiciary or to academia, Advocate General Bobek, and he talked about this in two opinions he gave in September 2021 before he left the court. And he really talked about the very broad scope of the GDPR and that it's almost endless. There's nothing it doesn't regulate now and it's sucking in even conversations between people to some extent if those conversations are based on an email an individual received earlier. Um, so he has talked about how there may be a need to relook at the expansive scope in it. I think that is something that could be looked at. There's an opinion that issued very, very recently. I cannot remember 
the name of the Advocate General from the CJU that issued her opinion, but it's in a reference case from Austria about a doping athlete, an athlete that had committed a doping offence and her details were published on, on the sports body's website. And she clearly challenged this and a, a reference was sent off on which the advocate has now pronounced. And the first thing that the advocate said is, Europe doesn't regulate uh, sport and doping in sport, so this doesn't fall to be handled under the GDPR. GDPR regulates data processing relating to areas of, of EU regulation. And then, of course, she says, if I'm wrong about that, and goes on to conduct the legal analysis. But it's interesting that that advocate was trying to narrow down the scope. And yet, in reality, it's not what we see. And the CJU has expanded the definitions of processing and personal data through the case law. So it's not the direction. That, that I think, could be looked at. I don't know if it has a solution. Yeah, they're really the thoughts I had on it. Can I just take you on to an issue that we haven't talked about so far, which is adequacy and data transfers? Something we often hear, and I'm sure you've heard many more times than I have, but from companies, international companies, but also from other governments globally and their embassies, is this concern that the EU's data transfer processes, whether that's via adequacy or via that's uh, standard contractual clauses, all the, uh, all the various elements under GDPR are not flexible enough for there to be a broader coalition of the willing internationally to have a, a data transfer framework between Western countries at least. And they would say this is a major, major barrier to international trade. I just wanted to get your sense of the extent to which you think this concern is justified. I mean, the way they would argue it is that it's very much a unilateral power or the EU that gives an unbalanced relationship when trying to come to common standards between different countries and different jurisdictions globally. I just wanted to understand if you give that much credence or if you think that's sort of going down the wrong track. I wouldn't give it a huge amount of credence because I think it is clear Europe has led in data protection regulation in terms of the laws that it, it, it has implemented. And over the last couple of years, we've seen laws implemented in many more countries around the globe that really emulate the GDPR. So there's much higher saturation now of specific laws regulating data protection as a discipline. And that has been an exporting of, of EU standards to some extent. In general terms, and you're familiar with this argument, it would make no sense for the EU to have high standards of data protection and then to allow the data be exported out of the jurisdiction, which it inevitably will because all of us understand that data must flow and will flow. It would make no sense that the EU wouldn't insist that the rights, at least to a large extent, must flow with the data, may not be expressed in identical ways, but it must, of course, as we know from the case law, be essentially equivalent. So I think that's reasonable enough. I suppose your question then is around the flexibility that if not everyone wants to attain the standards in the way the EU delivers on them, etc., whether that's creating issues and, and is a cause for concern. On that point, the scenario that really jumps to my mind is the data protection framework that we now have with the, with the US. Obviously, we've seen Safe Harbor was struck down. We've seen Privacy Shield was struck down. I do wonder what the political energy and capacity, particularly under a Trump administration, but let's put that to one side. I think under any administration, let's say in three to four years' time, the European Court of Justice strikes that down as well. That feels almost like that could be the end of the road. Just before I come to that, and I will come specifically to it, on... The question of unilateral, we've seen with the Japan adequacy decision, there's a high degree of bilateralism in the Japan adequacy decision. And even the data privacy framework that you've just mentioned, that's far more of a bilateral agreement than a unilateral agreement as compared to the safe harbor and the privacy shield where the US has had to designate the EU after its own checks as a relevant jurisdiction. Speaking as the authority that has ended up dealing with the fallout of the issue that you're raising 
through legal means and through the courts. I absolutely agree. It's not sustainable from a certainty of trade and business point of view and a certainty of protection of fundamental rights that we would be stuck in this Groundhog Day loop. I can equally say as a data protection authority, and for my 10 years as commissioner at the Data Protection Commission, no issue has taken up more of my time and resources than the issue of EU to US data transfers because of the large-scale cases in which I've been involved, the litigation that I brought to the High Court in terms of seeking the reference in 2016 that was ultimately made in 2019 to the CJU to clarify the law around adequacy. And that's not sustainable that you'd keep looping back through a data protection authority and through the Irish courts when, as you said, it's political energy and a global set of standards that are needed. I don't think the EU's regime lacks flexibility in terms of the EU being a participant in discussions through its own Article 50 of the GDPR around international agreements. I don't think there is anything particularly extreme about the standards in EU data protection law. They're about fairness, security, integrity, transparency. I don't think there is anything particularly unusual about them. So in, in summary, I share the concerns about the unsustainability of what's happening, but I don't think it's to do with lack of flexibility. I think it's to do with lack of global will to sort this out at a political level. So in a sense, if other jurisdictions aren't going to hit the basic minimum standards or most of it that you see in the GDPR, then there's very little that the EU can do, essentially. What would the alternative be to say, oh, well, those data protection principles were nice, but sure, look, nobody else seems to think fairness and, and security are important. Uh, and I think the EU is gaining ground. As I said, we see these laws that emulate the GDPR, the numbers of applications for adequacy to the EU. I think the US, of course, has just been a particular since the Snowden disclosures has been a particularly tense and difficult subset of, of the issues around transfers. Certainly. And I, well, I suspect the US will continue to be so in the coming years, but also a number of jurisdictions as we, as we see how some of these cases play out. Let's move on while in the remaining time, just to look at some of these forward-looking policy tensions. And you actually alighted on one that I wanted to ask you about earlier when you talked about interoperability under the Digital Markets Act and the impact that might have on data protection. And I suppose there's that tension between data protection and competition. And I was interested, I'd love to hear a little bit more. You, you said at the time, something on the lines of actually on this one, you think some of the companies, it's not just sort of hot air. There is, there is clearly something here, a clear policy challenge that needs to be worked out. So just to just get your views, is it possible to square that circle between having that consumer ease between moving to different platforms, ensuring that these so-called gatekeeper platforms aren't overly dominant, but also making sure that the services they can provide are sufficiently secure and privacy protecting. If you then have to shift all this data between different platforms all the time, what's your view? Yeah, so I think the challenges are real. If I look at some of the independent research on what some of the academics that have looked at this, they basically say that if you're going to have interoperability, there's going to have to be an element of acceptance that there are increased security risks and indeed potentially reduced security. Now, as a data protection authority, we wouldn't really be accepting a proposition that you're going to have reduced security and that individuals are going to be exposed to more risks. So I think when I was talking about GDPR 2.0, what the obligation now on the gatekeepers does is it forces them in the first instance under the DMA to comply with creating the circumstances for interoperability. To the extent that they contest that it is possible to do without breaching the GDPR or e-privacy legislation, that's going to force data protection authorities, including my office and DG Competition, 
to consider where the balance lies as between us. So I think we're ready to start seeing the specifics of what organizations come up with in terms of implementation plans to comply with the obligations, what reasons they're giving. If it is the case that they say, well, we cannot absolutely comply with that, we would need a derogation or why. And I think once we have those specific details on the table, I anticipate we will be able to square the circle. It's just not clear how to do it on, on, until we hit brass tacks and the DMA is forcing the point now. Yes, I mean, you can hear already the screams of hypocrisy, can't you? After our previous conversation before that other parts of the world need to hit these basic standards in order to have European citizens' data transferred to them. But at the same time, the European Commission is turning around and saying, well, actually, there might be an element of risk you have to take in order to have more interoperable services. There's a certain consistency problem. But interestingly, we'll see, indeed, as you say, whether that, that circle can indeed be squared. Let's move on to another one, though, Helen. The data protection online safety is another, another issue that we've seen a lot recently. So one, um, from my own experience in the UK, I don't know how closely you follow UK debates, but there's been with the online safety bill and the Investigatory Powers Act in the UK. So on the latter, Apple has raised major concerns about its messaging service. And then WhatsApp and Signal on the online safety bill have threatened to leave the UK should certain provisions be applied. They're not necessarily going to be applied, but should they be in the future applied, they would consider quitting the market. Now, clearly, that would be a seismic uh, impact on the policy debate in the UK were that to happen. And I, you have a sort of similar version of this in EU policy debates with the CSAM regulation, which covers child sexual abuse material, where there is this proposal around scanning messages or some form of technology to detect certain types of illegal and highly sensitive and abusive material. So just to get your sense on whether you think we're in the right ballpark in the CSAM regulation and how those rules have been designed or whether you have a similar concern, but the circle could be squared later down the line. Yeah, maybe not later down the line. I think we have to get closer to squaring the circle before the legislation is nailed down, because I think it seems clear at the moment if, if client-side scanning were to be mandated, it is most certainly going to expose users to risk in, in, in terms of those messaging services. For us as data protection authorities, in terms of that argument that you can't break encryption, you can't allow the implementation of anything that may become a backdoor. We're kind of sitting pretty at the moment because there is no law mandating this and end-to-end -end encryption is king and that's a good message for us to be behind. Equally, we have heard and understood the concerns of those that work in child safety, that are policymakers in the EU that simply say it's not sustainable and it's not reasonable that we would not attempt to tackle this problem of child sexual abuse material. So I agree that the policymakers do have to make a move. I think the laws at the moment and the technology that are possible in terms of independent analyses that I've looked at of, of the risks of client-side hashing, even partial, or client-side scanning and even partial hashing, it's clear that weighing up effectiveness and then security risks, there isn't agreement that the technology that could be implemented if it was mandated tomorrow could meet the aims, I suppose, that we would all have. So I think there's a bit of road still to travel on that, but I think the pressure should be sustained in terms of getting to that point. So one final one for you, Helen, and then be very generous with your time. So I'll, I'll conclude on this one, but it's around the topic that each conversation is ending up on, which is AI and AI innovation. I think you talked about earlier about how the GDPR is principle-based, technology neutral. So in principle, it's adaptable to developments like generative AI. But I would like to get your views on how the GDPR can be applied in practice. So if you think about, say, the right to be forgotten or the right to access, when we don't know what data is being collected, and if we're perhaps more fundamentally not quite clear how this data is being processed and used to generate content and text, I struggle to understand how we know the GDPR can be applied 
if we have that basic lack potentially of transparency. You're reminding me of the uh, 300 panels I did where I was asked about blockchain and uh, with blockchain, how exactly would, would all of these issues work out under GDPR? Your, your question is, of course, entirely legitimate. And I think we will probably in some instances end up having to fall back to purposive interpretations of what the aim of the GDPR is when we get down to some of those specifics. Equally, the EU is, of course, progressing at pace in terms of a specific AI act that will have rules around transparency to users and what must be communicated to them that may in some cases, I suppose, granularize what the aims of the GDPR around the same things are. So there's no doubt some of the things like the right to be forgotten simply can't work in in the same way as they would with the search engine and and based on the Custeca judgment of the CJEU. Equally, there are other aspects that the generative AI debate has already thrown up that put a spotlight on issues that we haven't resolved fully in terms of other types of platforms under GDPR. And I'm thinking in particular of child users and how you verify whether there is a child on the platform so that you can take appropriate measures. So we know from other platforms that they can use a variety of signals to detect if an individual is a child beyond very basic age gating. If if someone manages to get through the age gate, but then is interacting with content or posting content that would suggest they're a child, the platform can use those signals. Generative AI apps are very different. They're, they're limited signals, if any, perhaps queries that an individual enters that would suggest they're a child. How do you prevent under 18s from getting onto these generative AI apps? So there are the questions you've asked about how will some of these rights that have already been well interpreted under the GDPR work, but there's also some of the age-old questions we haven't cracked with the other platforms. And I suppose I rolled back to my, we're five years in, excellent progress made. There's a huge amount still to be done. But I detect from your tone of voice a certain confidence that although these questions seem hard to understand and, and work out exactly how they will work their way out at the moment, that ultimately the testing between regulators and with the companies themselves, with the role of the public in making complaints and how the case law may pan out, we will get there in the end. Is that a fair, fair inference to make? Well, I suppose we also need to see what the AI Act introduces in terms of further friction, but I don't think the GDPR in and of itself is going to prevent the technology from rolling out if that's what was wanted. And I think equally from a GDPR perspective, it can be made protective in, in personal data protection terms. And of course, the issues of AI go beyond just that, I suppose, is really what I'm saying. Well, look, Helen, thank you so much for what was a sweeping coverage of all things GDPR, both past, present and future. So thank you for joining me today. And to those who've listened, thanks so much for joining. If you would like to get in touch with the Global Council team to pick up any of the issues we've discussed today, you can do so by the link in the podcast notes or via our website at www.global-council.com. Thank you and hope you tune in next week. Bye-bye.